I really hope I don't screw up what God's been doing already. You know, I just sort of like to just soak all this up. And I'm a mystic anyway. I just like to go to my cave right now and just relax, be still. But Marie tells me I have to preach, so I'm going to do what she tells me to do. I don't know how your Revelation IQ is, but if you remember there in the earlier part of the book of Revelation, there was this um, message that God gave specifically to seven different churches on the postal route of Rome from Ephesus to Laodicea, Ephesus, and each, each church got a unique ring to what God was counseling them about. Ephesus had lost their passion. They were just going through the motions. They would show up at church or whatever they were doing, but they had no love and no passion for what they were about. And Laodicea was lukewarm. It just didn't care too much about things. And then all the way in between were all those messages. Have you ever wondered if John had shown up in St. Louis or Springfield after being hot oil poured over him? and we happen to be on the mail route of, of St. Louis, let's say, what God would say specifically to Rolla. I think that's sort of how we're supposed to deal with Scripture is start asking those very personal questions about how does this work for me? What am I, what would God say to me and Rolla today if John was writing a letter to seven churches between here and Springfield? I'd love to have that. And my hunch is, is every five to ten years that message would change because our culture seems to, to change its worldview and its perspectives about every five to ten years. You work with teens and the things that, that you talked about ten years earlier are not usually the things that you talk about ten years later because their perspectives and their issues and the things that bubble up are are changing all the time. I hate to admit how old I am, but I go back to the decades of my life, and I could go back to the 50s, but then you'd really think I'm old. So I'm going to start with the 60s here. But what would the message, what did, what is the message of that culture, and how would God speak against that? Because I think somewhat part of being a Christian is to be countercultural to the negative, broken messages of our day rather than um, buy into it. I think we need to be a part of our culture, but, the, but being part of our culture means we also have the right to stand against that part of our culture that is dark and evil and damaging, don't you not? So as I go back, here's my life philosophy as I see it from 1960s on, the first message that our culture gave us was love without responsibility creates chaos. Free love, free sex, free drugs, you name it, that's drop out of society. The chaos of that, what? Kids 10, 20 years later don't really have a mom or dad. I mean, there was no responsibility. They were left sort of free to raise themselves. That led into some very other interesting things. But love without responsibility creates chaos. That was the message that we got in the 60s as we look back at what the results of what was going on in the 60s. In the 70s, experimentation without wisdom destroys what it touches. Now, I know this is a shock to you younger ones, but the 60s is sort of when drug use 
became popular. Now, there was drugs around forever. It seems like almost before Noah, obviously, human beings have an innate ability to intoxicate themselves. We just sort of do that naturally. But in the 60s is when it really started seeping into our culture, and it really got cemented into the 70s. I was an RA in a dorm in 1971, and for the first time, I, I saw the boys in the dorm that I was in, because back those days, we didn't have both guys and girls in the same dorm. And late at night, the pot would come down the hall, and you know, I'd get a nice little lift as I was walking around, just checking everybody in and out. The 70s is when the experimentation, nobody knew what they were doing, and so everything happened. I mean, they were, they were experimenting with this and that and this concoction and everything, and it destroyed an awful lot of people. Experimentation without wisdom destroys what it touches. In the 80s, all those hippies turned out to be BMW Rolex watch holders. Materialism leads to futility. It was all about getting ahead, making money, making it as fast as you can, as much as you can. Everything else, all other priorities in your life just dropped aside. We remember those days. In fact, there's a country western song, Would Jesus Wear a Rolex? You guys remember that one? Those of you younger ones, I know you glaze over, yeah, but anyway. 90s, the era of the Clintons, it's not all about you. You are not the center of the universe. As we look back on that very self-directed, self-oriented, we are the only judge of what we do. You don't tell us anything right or wrong, we're it we learned that maybe we are not the center of the universe and maybe we screwed up a lot in the 90s. 2000s, now we're getting a little closer. Relativism is a no-win situation. We had to sort of evaluate our relativism, which basically said, we don't care what you believe. What you believe is just as good as what somebody else believes. Your lifestyle is just the same as somebody else's. Your culture is just as valid as some other culture. Well, when fanatical terrorists came and destroyed the, the Twin Towers, we had to some, come to grips with, is there some... Is there some things that are better and good and edifying in contrast to that which seeks to only destroy. And relativism became the focus of how do we process this. We haven't really processed it yet all the way, I don't think, but the, because we're a little closer to this one. But relativism is certainly still there, but it, we were forced to deal with it in going to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, standing up against or not standing up against fanatical uh, Islamic terrorism. We did it well in the World War II era because we didn't have that little dip of stuff in us. And now in the 2010s, the era, the decade that we're in seems to be defined as the decade of loneliness. Just this last week, a study came out. I want to read it to you. It's a study that comes out that in spite of all the social media that we have, Facebook does not solve our loneliness, evidently. Here's the study. Loneliness is an epidemic across the country. Health insurance giant Cigna issued its findings of a national survey this past Tuesday. 
and said loneliness is at epidemic levels in America. Of the 20,000 people interviewed, now usually these studies are 500, 1,000, maybe 2,000 people. They studied 20,000 people, surveyed for the study. Nearly half of Americans said they sometimes or always are feeling lonely, alone, or left out, 46, 47%. Among the major findings in the report, more young people reported being lonely than their older counterparts. 18 to 22-year-olds, you guys sitting here, you girls, your generation is more lonely than almost any other generation around. In fact, more than half of adults ages 18 to 22 identify with 10 of the 11 feelings associated with loneliness. Feeling like people around them are not really with them, 69%. Feeling shy, 69%. Feeling like no one really knows them well, 68%. Are among the most common feelings experienced by those in the ages of 18 to 22. We just all want to be connected. Our goal is to be one somehow with somebody else or a group of somebody else's. Last week, Marie started this series on, on difficult, hard conversations that we need to have with maybe people across the aisle from us or uh, uh, in a whole different cultural setting or whatever and how, how Christians find a hard way sometimes to put away the judgment, to put away the condemnation, to put away the... the um, instant um, bias that we have and be able to have meaningful conversations in difficult situations. Today, she's asked me to talk about unity. Unity being that goal that we all have to be connected. Here's the definition of unity here. The state of being one. Oneness. It's what we're supposed to feel when we come to church. It's what we're supposed to have when we get married. It's supposed to be what we experience as we're growing up in a single unit family, whatever that looks like and whatever that is. The state or totality is combining all of its parts into one. The state of, or fact of being united or combined into one as of the parts of a whole. Unification as we're talking about it, yes, we all want that. That's how we want to experience our life. We want to know and be known. We want to know somebody deeply, and we want them to know us deeply. The problem is our world has gotten more and more tribal all the time, has it not? Our custom is to be close to people who are like us. I read a book about three months ago that... that discusses the fact that our segregated um, societies in America, as an example, and is talking specifically about here, is not always based, and sometimes it is, but mostly it's not based on racial priorities. 
Uh, it is based upon the fact that we as human beings like to gravitate towards people that know us and are like us and have similar worldviews and similar ideas. And, and so you can take a, a and it's happened already, we've, we've done these experiments in the 50s and 60s where we made these housing units and we have multiracial um, uh, ratios so that we have a mixed housing situation and in 20 years it has gone either all white or all black or all Hispanic or all Indian or whatever it is because human nature wants to gravitate towards people who are like them who understand them that you don't have to explain yourself just look oh I know you're vineyard okay well I know what that means you see this unity however seems to be unattainable so what happens is we substitute uniformity for unity. So we think that we can all be one if we all think the same and act the same and live in the same place or whatever. And you look at, the, you, you look at what's going on. Berkeley is a classic example. In the 60s, Berkeley was the, the hotbed of free speech. Anybody could say anything they wanted to on the campus of Berkeley. Today, you can only do left-leaning speech. You can't bring in rights because uniformity is this emotional response to the lostness, to the loneliness of our culture we're lonely so we only want to be around people who are sort of like us and so uniformity becomes this emotional um, draw the power of our generation here you guys growing up in this generation uniformity the the, the struggle the the pressure to be uniform I don't think God made us to be cookie cutters. I think he made us to be radically different and unique and personalities and perspectives and worldviews and understandings and conclusions. I think he made us to be this broad tree of amazing different fruit on the same root. But there's everything within us that tries to bring us back into this context of uniformity. So as we unpack this morning, I just want us to, I want to introduce this topic, and then I want us to have prayer and ask God to just sort of do whatever he needs to do to help us really learn what he wants us to learn about this oneness, this unity, so that our conversations, starting with ourselves, and our conversations starting with others, is rooted in in God's perspective. So let's pray. Lord, just right now, just unpack for us ourselves the biases, the, the atmosphere of our lives, the, the lies that we have bought into and just accepted as truth because sort of like fish and water, it surrounds us so much that we, we take it in without even knowing it. And may we understand your beautiful and awesome and amazing counter-truth that surpasses the brokenness around us. May that be real to us this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the story of creation, when God bent down and he intimately created you and me, the beginning of our identity as human beings is that we are 
we are the product of this contact between God and us. His hand touched our hand. His eyes looked at our eyes. As we awaken in that pool of mud that we're formed from, the very first thing we see is the beaming face of Jesus looking at us. Colossians 1, Philippians 1 says, Jesus was our creator. The very first thing we see is him looking at us, looking back at us with these beaming, excited smile, maybe laughter, maybe joy, however he expressed it. The first thing Adam saw was that. The first thing Eve saw was that. That's how intimately we were created. We were created, connected to this creator. His hands, his eyes, his shaping, his breath. We were one with he who made us, this God, this creator God. And he conveyed to us this immense joy at our creation. What we learned right off the bat was that we were made to be loved and we were made to love. There's nothing more profound in our creation story than that fact. We were made with the capacity to love and to be loved. That means that we were made with something eternally powerful, that we were made with something that would expand forever, that you can never reach the limits of, uh, limits of love. You can never say, okay, I love and I can't love anymore. I can't go any deeper. I can't go any farther. For eternity, we're going to ex be expanding our ability to love. When you get there, you're going to be sort of feeble in it. 10,000 years later, you'll be better, but 10 billion years later, you're still going to be better than that. We were made to love and to be loved. There was never a hint from our Creator that we were not united and our life didn't have meaning and purpose. It was to be fulfilling and it was to be full. In addition, we were able to be connected to each other. Adam sees Eve for the very first time, and he says, oh, she is me, and I am her. Whatever she is and whatever I am, we are one. We are connected. So we're not only connected to our Creator, we're connected to each other. And then we're also connected to the world around us. The very first thing they're doing is involved in getting to know the animals and naming the animals and and and. And all of the opportunity to explore this creation, the scientist within them, the, the engineer within them, the mathematician within them, the poet within them, the, the musician within them expanded at that moment in time as, as they were loved and able to love, connected to each other and connected to the world around them. There was no brokenness. There was no hint of anything other than total complete togetherness. Somehow we've lost that, you know. It, it's probably the, the, the worst curse of our fear and shame, which we'll get to here in just a minute, is the fact that we do not feel that same connectedness today. What happens in South Chicago doesn't seem to impact us. What's going on in Syria right now doesn't seem to raise a whole lot of stuff except we sort of gasp and hoard how bad it is. 
And never for a moment do we ever imagine that, you know, given the same circumstances and some of the same pressures, that same thing could happen right here in Rolla. That they're human just like us with the same stuff we got going on in us. We saw it happen in Germany in World War II. Why in the world would you think it wouldn't happen here given the right circumstances with the right pressures? We don't anguish over our entire culture like we used to because we're so tribal. We're so used to saying, well, that's them and this is us. And we can say that with other religions. We can say that with other ways to worship. We can say that with other lifestyles. We can get so blooming judgmental around here. And somehow some churches have taught us that that's, all, that's our goal is you've got to stand up with the right and you've got to judge everything and push it out the door somewhere. Instead of saying maybe we need to learn how to be one and break down the barriers. Also, we were made to connect at the level of our glory. That's the other thing that creation tells us. We were made to connect on the basis of our glory. We were made glorious. We were made awesome. We were made at the hand of God. We were made to be sons and daughters. We were to live like royalty. We were to have concern and intimate care on the dominion of the nature and the culture around us. We were designed to be the people riding the white horses. Guys, you were designed to slay the biggest, baddest dragons you could imagine. Ladies, you were designed to float through the forest on your horse, your hair streaming behind. And I don't know what your dream goes on from there. Sir Galahad chasing after you. I don't want to know because I've never been a girl. I don't imagine those things. But you were made to be glorious. There's the whole idea that comes out of Christianity that we talk about original sin. Why don't we talk about original glory? That's our original state. That's what we all miss. That's what we long for is that sense of connectedness that was given to us at the very beginning. We were made to be safe, loving caretakers of the dominion and the people around us. We were awesome. You know how awesome we were? Hebrews 2.7 describes you and me this way. You made humankind for a short while... Now, some of your translations don't have that, but that's exactly what the Greek means there. You were made for a short while lower than the angels. So you know what that means? You were built so awesomely that your capacity to expand and grow was going to surpass whatever the angels experienced. You crowned them with glory and honor. That is your identity. That's who you are. When I saw you and you saw me back then, we would connect on our glory stuff. I would look at you and I'd say, wow, you are so awesome. Your sense of humor, you, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. You are the most generous person I've ever, ever met. It, you go on down the list and that's all we're seeing as we connect with each other in creation was your glory. 
We always connected on that spot. I'm convinced that today we probably need 12-step programs not on our brokenness, but we probably need more a 12-step program on how to enter back into our glory. Instead of me getting up and saying, I am Bob Bretch and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm Bob Bretch and I'm a wife beater, or I'm Bob Bretch and I'm this or I'm that, and we, and we connect on our brokenness, and you know, so often that's what we do. It, it's, it seems so much easier for us to connect on our place of pain than it is for us to connect on our place of glory. But what about a 12-step program where we learn to reclaim who we really are? Where I can get up in front of you and say, I am Bob Bretch, and I am happy, and I'm learning how to be more fulfilled every day. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I didn't kill my foster sons this week. I'm a good guy. (laughs) Why don't we do that? In fact, why don't we do that? How about a commercial here? Why don't we do that? Would you like to join a group? Isn't that sort of what church was supposed to be anyway? Why do we come into church every week and put a Band-Aid over that which is broken and we get three little techniques on how to be a better person instead of coming to church to say, this is who I really am in Christ. I'm going to live out my glory today. I'm going to learn a little bit more what it means to have a caring, loving dominion over this planet that God has given to me. I'm going to reach out to you in your glory, and I'm not going to reach out to you in your brokenness. And I'm going to look for you, and I'm going to know you well enough so that I can celebrate all the awesome stuff that you are. If you're in, wouldn't that be cool? Um, okay, if you're interested in something like that, talk to one of the pastors and say, I want to join that. This summer, bring the kids out to the park. We can sit around and we can celebrate and learn how to be our living in our glory and maybe have a picnic afterwards or something. We could do it on a weekly or biweekly basis. Hey, if you're interested in it, let us know. But I think that's really more what church should be than about anything else I can imagine church to be. Now, getting back from the commercial here, even after our fall into shame and fear, God sees our amazing potential. In Genesis eleven six, he said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, here, here's the part right here, this is how awesome you are, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God made us with unlimited potential. Nothing we can dream about can we not do. What a different world it would be if we could just simply see each other in our glory rather than in our brokenness. And one last thing about this creation story that's important in this discussion about oneness and unity is that God made us lonely. That was one of his greatest creations. You say, well, just a minute, that sounds just opposite of what we've just been talking about. God made us lonely. But that was a blessing if we live in our glory. 
Because otherwise we could be content in our glory to be sort of isolated and non-stimulated and live in a cave like I would like to do. But if we're lonely, we have to reach out. But when we're lonely, we reach out in your glory. And you reach out and see my glory. And we see the glory of the world around us. And, we're, and it becomes this exploration, this, this sense of discovery about everything around us. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden before they, they became fearful and shameful. And, and they got to study the the. the cellular structure of plants and they got to know the animals. I mean, they were masters and geniuses of all of these sciences. Why? Because they used this loneliness to connect with that which they did not know and to understand. And there was no fear and there was no concern about where all that would go. Let's just take ourselves and go and, and develop this awesomeness together. It was a wonderful, amazing gift until Adam and Eve exchanged their glory for fear and shame. And once they did that, this loneliness became a curse. That's when we say, oh man, loneliness? Why? You know, it became a curse because suddenly no one measured up. No one knew me like I want to be known. I can't know someone else because we're all so busy putting on, on fig leaves to try to hide our true identity because we're afraid of who we really are. And we don't let anybody else, we spend all of our time with what psychologists call false imago. We put the false image out there so that you see the false image so you don't dare look beyond that to see the real image of who's behind here. And all of our energy is spent in creating this false image here because we're putting on our own personal fig leaves of self-protection. Why are you hiding, Adam? I'm afraid. Afraid? I never made you afraid. Why are you afraid? Well, you know that tree. And then once he admitted his... His fear, what was he afraid of? He looked at himself and he was hideously naked. He'd been naked all the time, but he didn't ever see it as a curse. Now he saw it as a curse. His true identity to Adam was a curse. I'm afraid of what you're going to do to me, God, now that I see who I really am. That's not how you really are, Adam. Yes, it is. And then... It breaks down even further, and so God gets the blame for all of this. Notice here in uh, Genesis 3, verse 12, the woman you gave me. If you'd have just given me a better woman, God, this wouldn't have happened. Husbands have been saying that for a long time. Started with Adam. If you just gave me a better woman, God, this would not have happened. So he took on God, his wife, she no longer seemed to be as glorious as she once was. The, the, the nature around them deteriorated. The snake that happened to be there, one of the most beautiful animals in creation, evidently, one of the most attractive. It was not hideous in those days because Eve would have recoiled against something hideous. But here's this glorious, probably a flying, because the curse was that he began to crawl on the ground. Probably a flying snake coming through the air and resting in that beautiful tree, Hey, do you want to be like me? I just ate this fruit. Guess what I can do? But now that even nature got cursed 
God got cursed, relationships got cursed, nature got cursed. It all happened in one fell swoop there, just so quickly. And so what happens? Relationships. The relationships that we want the most become the most distorted the quickest. Genesis 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Every husband's favorite memory verse. The problem is there isn't a woman alive that's going to let a husband rule her anyway. This is not God's will here. That is not God's will. That is the result of the curse of the fear and the shame that we entered into. God's will was that we live in our glory equal. In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. All the barriers are taken away. But in fear and shame, the barriers get raised. And so God says, you know what's going to happen now? Relationships have just got screwed up here. The guy with the biggest muscles is going to try to rule. And that means the husband's going to probably, you know, take you on a few times. Now, a woman has a different way of coming back. I mean, she's not going to probably, you know, get the boxing gloves on and take him on. But ladies, you know how to get back, right? You know who really controls things. Speaking as a man, of course. Now, relationships really got screwed up. Headship and incompleteness are the result as the curse of sin. It is not God's will. God never set a man up to be over a woman. But that is the result of sin. Contrary to what some of you have been taught. But I am... How far we fell from our original glory to groveling for place and position. The battle for rulership has been going on ever since. And the, the nature of that battle, I just listed a few here this morning for you. Political power, military power, financial power, sexual power, relationship power, educational power, religious power. These, these are, and the list, and those are just the general ones, okay? As a psychologist, I can tell you that even depression can be used as a power. You, you get depressed, you go in the room, you close the door, and you curl up in a fetal position for three days. The rest of the family has to quietly tiptoe. Everything gets geared around your depression. Or you, you, um, you hit the bottle, as most men do with their depression. And so pretty soon the whole family begins to keep the alcoholic secret from everybody else. And all the energy of the family is to keep that alcoholism uh, away from anybody else knowing and dad making sure that he can get to work on time. You know what I mean? So there's all kinds of power. And we all know how to use it, do we not? All of these stem from the basic thirst, if you're taking notes, and loneliness of our fear and shame. All of that happens. All demand conformity and uniformity as the cost of belonging to the power base available to you. So, military, totalitarianism, whatever, you gotta, you got to be conformative or uniform with the thinking of the day or you're on the way out somewhere. 
So what do we need to do and understand, okay? That's the, to the nitty-gritty here. Number one, we need to know that we are glorious. If there's nothing else that God is calling you to do for the next week, for the next month, for the next year, is for you to wake up to your personal glory in Christ. We need to know that we are glorious right now, right here. What that means is we got to do a mind meld here. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Shake your mind loose. Take it back to its roots. Ephesians 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by his loving passion for you that you can even do this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You're not a groveling worm. You're a son and daughter who has already been raised up. You're already living in the heavenlies. You've got two addresses. Which one do you prefer? Second thing, I hope you're taking quick notes. We need to give up our personal quest for power. Whatever is working for us, so-called so working for us, we need to give it up. That's not how we are going to have conversations with ourselves, with our spouses, with anybody else that's not us. Romans 12 verse 3, for by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober. What this means is accurate. Okay, don't pridefully build yourself up, but in your glory live who you are. Be accurate in your thinking. No, you are not a lousy loser. You are awesome and glorious. You are beautiful in your way. You are rich with the riches of heaven. You are already in the will of the Father. You can sit at the supper table with Jesus and you can wear your pajamas and it's okay. You belong. You are defined by that belonging. You are not defined by your sexual preference or your job at work or the power base that you come out of. In accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Number three, use love as the only non-corrosive language available to use with those who think that uniformity is the only way we can restore our glory. In other words, let's not build up walls. I could have said that a lot better. Let's just not build up walls. <laughs> I was really, who knows what I was doing on that one. Let's put down the barriers that separate us. Let's become one again with all of those around John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that you must love one another. Not conformity, but proactive love. Now, I'm way out of time, so I'm going to go really short here, but the worst day of the disciples' life was on the way to the, to the Last Supper. 
And if you read the story in the Gospels, it's the disciples were walking far enough ahead of Jesus that Jesus could not hear their conversation. They were a little embarrassed about what they were talking about. But what they were talking about was who's going to have the biggest throne in the kingdom. Because they sensed that, you know, this was, this was now after the um, Palm Sunday and Jesus wrote in and how finally Jesus has got it. He's now going to rise up and be the king of the world, whatever. So which one of us is going to get the biggest throne? So they're all talking about thrones. Leaving Jesus out and also competing against everybody else because that's what you do when you're cursed. So they get to the upper room and they all stiffly, because they are going to be rulers someday, they all stiffly go to their reclining positions around that table and no one stops to say, you know what, our custom is that we wash each other's feet. So the only one in the room who knew what it was like to be one was Jesus. And while they're all struggling with thrones, Jesus goes and takes a towel. And he takes that towel and a basin of water, and he goes around and reunites himself with every one of those men. And the act of his humility, his connectedness, his love, his interest... And we only got a hint of a few of the conversations, the time with Peter, you know, you don't touch my feet, Jesus. No, you're too good for that or whatever. Uh, But each one had a conversation with him based upon the fact that his authority rested on on his ability to pick up a towel rather than talk about a throne. I'm going to jump through a whole bunch of stuff, but here's here's the bottom line for this morning. When you and I first understand that we're glorious, and secondly, we're so glorious that we can humble ourselves to pick up a towel, then we can have meaningful conversations about oneness with no barriers between us and no embarrassment and no defensiveness. You don't have to defend anything. You just proactively care and love and live your awesomeness. And then God's kingdom on earth will be more his kingdom on earth. And that's a good thing.